Okay, guys, welcome to the Triage Method podcast. This is episode 26, I believe. We missed out on an episode last week because the guest we have on today was a scumbag and he cancelled on us, right? It's actually terrible, but that does mean that we have a guest on today. And as you may know, Gary is away in Bali. I have had exams the last while, so we've been quite busy, but it's coming into the summer now and you know what that means. It means that all the stuff, all the content we put out is about to go into hyperdrive. So I'm going to say it now and then not mention it again. If you haven't already, now is the time to jump into the triage militia because it's about to completely light up, go on fire and have a sickening amount of content produced over the next one. Right. So there's my scumbag sales pitch. Now, let's get into today's guest. Today on the podcast, we have a fellow who is near and dear to triage. He's a, he's a, he's a bright guy. He's a nice guy too. His name is Luke. You may know him as Biophysiques on Instagram or whatever platforms you may follow him on. And he's a smart guy. And today, what we're going to discuss is a little bit about muscles. And there's a few rabbit holes we want to kind of go down, but we'll kind of let the conversation go whatever way it wants to go. So Luke, do you want to introduce yourself any further or do you feel that just being a smart guy is enough for everyone to know who you are? Because I know you have like like some business thing with a guy called Cauliflower Raisin or something. I'm not sure really who it is, Um, but... uh, who are you? Well, that was a, a very, very kind introduction. Um, yeah, I wasn't like, being called a smart guy from Paddy the Wizard is a is quite quite something. So I appreciate it. Um, no, so I'm basically a personal trainer um, and online coach uh, based in Kent in the UK and. Uh, I mean, I, I won't bore you with a huge introduction, other than to say that I, just, you know, I have a particular passion for exercise mechanics and and understanding how the body's working as you know on a, as deep a level as I can get to, um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, and that's kind of how how I approach my my coaching practice, and and with regards to training and stuff, it's kind of going in deeper and understanding more of how everything's working and how we can optimize things from a from a training perspective and, and uh, such and such. So, yeah, I mean, I, that's probably where I'll leave it. But, um, yeah, thank you again for the kind words, buddy. So, basically, what you're saying is you're a jacked guy. I know everyone can't see you on a podcast, but in fairness, you're pretty jacked. Like, you're a big, you're a big boy, and you like all the stuff that Gary likes, right? So, what I'm thinking here is we should actually just <laughs> replace Gary with you. So, would that be a fair enough assessment? Like you're basically a bigger version of Gary. Except I'm not Irish, mate. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fair. <laughs> I know, I'd, have to, I'd have to fake the accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, um, but no, Gar- Gary's the man. It's, uh, it's a shame he couldn't be here. And, and, no, it's not a shame. Gary, it's not a shame he couldn't be here. He's in Bali. He's, li- he's living <laughs> up life out there in the sun. Yeah, I'm sure he probably wouldn't, wouldn't agree with that. But um, no, I think like Gary's one of the guys that I respect most with regards to his knowledge of um of mechanics so it's a it's an honor to be here in his place 
right? That's enough jerking yeah. each other off, right? Look, cool. We're both cool. Yeah, yeah, We're both yeah, smart yeah, guys. Yeah. It's all great. Now, yeah. um, let's get down to the brass tacks. Muscles. What's the crack with them? Because obviously everyone has them or you wouldn't be moving around. Uh, you see a lot of stuff in the, the health and fitness industry, which arguably is just completely incorrect. And it all kind of stems from a fundamental misunderstanding. I would actually even argue a fundamental lack of understanding entirely of yeah. muscles as a whole. So I know you you get horny with this stuff. So so take us through muscles. What's the crack? Go on. Give us your give us your wisdom. So yeah, so I uh, I hundred percent agree with um with the statement that it is basically a lack of understanding because people essentially get this very basic understanding of how muscle works and then use that as a basis for a lot of their approaches and, and thought processes behind training and, and like rehabilitation and, and stuff like that. And it, it's a big, it's an easy fix because it generally often requires you to educate someone on the anatomy of a muscle, how a muscle actually works when it's contracting, when it's lengthening, what's going on on like the neurological side of things in like when people are training and the picture becomes a lot clearer as to how things work but people like you said they just don't don't go into it so it's um and it, it's it's a strange one you know you know it, it's it's like as exercise professionals we're we're that's like the only thing we're allowed to specialize in so you get people kind of getting really hot in nutrition you know as a pt and stuff like that and it's like you know that's cool but you're not technically licensed to do anything from a nutritional standpoint you're licensed to do stuff from a training standpoint and people don't even understand the ins and outs of how muscles are working. And um, so it's, yeah, it, it basically pays to, to go into that. So I think I thought we'd start and go through like the anatomy of, of, of how a muscle is made up um, kind of from the outside in. Um, yeah. And like, I, I, I can understand why people don't, really dive deep with this stuff because it does seem very i don't know abstract we'll say because like you, you look at it and you look at oh i can actually do an exercise so if you can do the exercise say it's a, a bicep curl you know or you presume at least uh, i do a bicep curl my biceps are going to grow and it can kind of seem like well why would i ever need to go further in depth than that as an exercise specialist as a personal trainer or even as your your average gym goer because you're like well i do this thing and i get this outcome and and you, you can understand why people don't go deeper as a result because it's like what is there deeper to understand but the fact that you are just looking at this one thing and hoping that it's going to lead to this outcome yeah that might work for you if you have the perfect mechanics you have the perfect joint angles you have the perfect structures that allow that exercise to overload a certain musculature but then the issue really comes about when you're away from the, the average or the normal. And it's like you're looking at these – actually, I wouldn't even see outside of the average or outside of the normal. Outside of the optimal, you're looking at these like general population people. Like I have pretty long femurs. you know, So that changes everything now in terms of how I actually load that musculature. So if I just follow the, the conventional wisdom and go, oh, squats build your legs, it's like is this actually – targeting the musculature that I want to target? Am I just going, oh, am I just following dogma in terms of that's what everyone does, so that's what's going to get these muscles to work? 
because obviously they, you know, my quads contracting or extending my legs. So obviously that's, they're going to grow then, but obviously it just completely ignores all of the other stuff that's actually going on, on purely because you don't actually understand the actual function of the muscle itself and how that fits into the bigger picture of how that like the, the joints themselves, the, the joints in position relative to each other, and then completely ignores the, the neurological side of things because you, you see PTs and they don't even look at tempo. They don't even look at uh, the, the rep ranges. It's like, oh, well, we just do kind of 8 to 12 just because that's dogma. That's bodybuilding ranges and stuff. So I can understand why people don't look deeper into it because it seems like it's a simple equation where it's do bicep curls, your biceps will grow. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know any further than that. But when you actually start peeling back the layers and looking at it a little bit deeper, you start to realize there's actually a lot more to this. And the more I understand, the more people I can actually help. Because a lot of people look at this stuff and only see the application to, say, injured people or people that can't perform an exercise for whatever reason. Like they they, they can't squat because, I don't know, they did their ACL in or something. And it's like how do we actually help these people? Yeah, okay, cool. Understanding all this is going to facilitate us helping those people. But understanding this as well is going to help us actually help the people who are optimally built, quote unquote. We're going to be able to help them even more if we have a better understanding. So it doesn't just, I know people listening to this may think, oh, well, this just applies to injured populations or people that are you know, outside the normal or outside the optimal but no man it applies to everyone the more in-depth you can understand this the better you can program the better you can perform exercises the better you can help everyone and i don't even mean to just have personal trainers or exercise professionals listening to this going like oh this is the podcast i need to listen to like this applies to you if you're just a general gym goer understanding this a little bit deeper you don't have to know every single term you don't have to know every single function or every single anything that we say today you just have to understand there are a few layers to this and understanding these layers and how they fit into you as an individual does actually help you overall so what like muscles what's what's the crack like we we all have them they 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 shorten they lengthen what, what what's going yeah. on so firstly nice i agree everything the um i mean yeah i'll, I'll just quickly say understanding this stuff it's like the post Paddy put up a sweet post today on his uh, social media talking about how we should celebrate the fact that we're all different. And yes, we should. And then it's a case of understanding that we're all different and then how things need to be different for us with regards to training. So it's uh, it's putting the personal in personal training, which is definitely something that is lost these days. But anyway, so the anatomy mm. of skeletal muscle. Basically, so I mean, if we start go from the outside in, you you, you want to it, it gives you some of this. You, you guys out there are going to be like, what, why the fuck do I need to know what an epimetheum is? And it's a case of you don't really know to know what it is. I mean, maybe you do if if you like to geek out, fair play. But it gives you an understanding of what's happening when a muscle shortens and lengthens, which we'll see later. But you basically start, it goes, so you go epimetheum, which is like the connective tissue that encloses each muscle, which is kind of that one that you always see that's drawn on like cartoons and stuff like that. 
and then um, and then even deeper to that, you have the paramecium, which is the connective tissue that's enclosing each fascicle, and then each fascicle is like a, is is a bundle of muscle fibers, and then this is surrounded by an endomecium, which is connective tissue that encloses each muscle fiber, and then a muscle fiber is basically the individual contractile units within muscle, and then you have within those the sarcolemma which is the cell membrane of the muscle fibers, which contains the sarcoplasm, which everyone will know. Um, and the, the sarcoplasm is like the cytoplasm, and it contains the myofibrils, the glycogen, the myoglobin, the mitochondria, sarcoplasmic reticulum, which itself stores things like calcium ions, um, which are then pumped into the sarcoplasm to be used for muscular contraction. When a muscle fiber is stimulated by an action potential from a from a neuron. Um, so, I mean, just in that sentence alone, it's kind of bullshit when people say sarcoplasmic hypertrophy doesn't lead to an increase in strength because you, you've got more essentially raw materials there to drive muscular contraction. Um, and then, but yeah, we got the myofibrils, which is the like the lengthy protein bundles that are composed of sarcomeres and then the sarcomeres themselves which are the basic unit of skeletal muscle which is comprised of the myofilaments which everyone will or should be familiar with which is the actin and myosin and then the not so familiar the titan and the troponin which we'll touch on but the and, and like mostly like 90 percent of the actual muscle protein itself is going to be actin and myosin and they're the ones that everyone hears about um but that's i mean like pretty inflictive at, at how muscles are made and then uh and then it's a case of going through what gaz has spoken about a lot i don't know if he's done it on the podcast yet but the um uh he's, he's definitely there's articles on it in the triage militia which i'm gonna plug it because i remember it it's awesome <laughs> so sign up um the uh <laughs> but sliding filament theory and this is basically the process by which muscular tra- uh, contraction occurs. And then, um, so, I mean, I'm assuming everyone's caught up right now. But the, um, so when we're looking at what, how muscle shortens, you want to, we're basically thinking calcium is released into sarcoplasm, which uncovers actin binding sites, and then the myosin, which is the two headed, like thicker filament that kind of sits in the middle. Uh, will bind to these uh, uncovered sites and pull the the actin past the myosin, which shortens the sarcomere. It basically brings those two ends, which are the what you'd call the, the Z discs or the Z discs, like closer to the uh, the middle, the M line. Um, and um, the and then what happens is then ATP will then bind uh, to the other head of the myosin and detach it from uh, actin, which will allow the myosin to kind of cock back and then attach to a further um, part of the actin, which will then continue the shortening process. Um, and uh, and then this basically continues for as long as the, the action potential stimulating the process lasts. And then you have titin, which is a guy that not a lot of people have heard about, but it's spelled T-I-T-I-N. And that basically works to, in the shortening process, it's there to stabilize the, the myosin filament and, and to kind of facilitate the binding process that's occurring. Um, but, I mean, 
the lengthening process is the one that people kind of butcher and and it is very uh, abused within the realms of like stretching and and training to a degree but more so stretching um but like if we look at when a, a muscle's lengthening actively you've still got an action potential that's occurring, like being driven into that that muscle fiber via via a neuron um axon etc because uh, we still have force that's being produced during that like active lengthening so that that would be like on an eccentric contraction and then you'd have the well, I suppose I always need to say, like on on the in the lengthening process, like the the level of displacement between actin and myosin will be less, because um, the process is essentially still being mediated by these these cross bridging, like those actin and myosin filaments, kind of on de cross bridging, if you want to even if I just made that up, whatever that is. Um, but if you were, and it's the passive lengthening, which is kind of an interesting one, I think more interesting because you basically get. The actin filaments pulled away from the myosin filaments, and then the titin is working to prevent the overstretching of the sarcomeres, and they basically recoil the the sarcomeres after the lengthening process. And, and uh, if you were to actually look at a diagram a bit, titin is usually represented as kind of like a coiled string, so it does actually have like an ability to stretch, which which actin and myosin don't, and that's quite important to know. Um, but the uh, uh, like tension will increase within the my like within the myofilament in line with the amount of displacement that's being created by the actin and the myosin during this process, and then the uh, I mean I mean this kind of leads on to like the theory for why we have this decrease in strength after something like when we passively stretch, and that's like where the actin and the myosin filaments are still displaced to some degree because they've essentially been pulled a little too far. Um, or further than they would want to go actively, and that, that then this would essentially cause optimal cross bridging and with it force production to be impaired if we would then go straight into contracting or shortening that muscle again. Um, so that's kind of a breakdown of sliding filament theory. People are still awake. <laughs> Any? Yeah, no, it's actually one of those things that I, I find a lot of people kind of have an idea you know and they're like oh i kind of understand that like gary has has put up a few kind of good analogies with that kind of stuff but i, I like to think of like that actin or actin and myosin if i could speak uh like the actual like the power stroke will say i like to kind of think of it it's like velcro you know you've got this like actin myosin kind of binding together and that's essentially them sticking together and every single time the further you are contracting, you're pulling off that Velcro, taking a step forward, pulling off that Velcro, taking a step forward. Obviously, it's not exactly like that. But in my head, that kind of allows me to kind of think, okay, so that's why even eccentrically, it's, it's you still have power there because you still have to pull off that Velcro. I know that's not exactly what it is like, but in my head, that kind of helps me see what's going on at the at the muscle level. And then with Titan as well, I kind of like to think of that like a bungee cord, you know, like it, it's it's kind of letting you go but it doesn't want you to go too far mm. like you don't want to dip your head in the water at the end of the bungee jump you know so there's there's a certain amount of length in that titan but it realistically doesn't want to go too far because think of it like logically right and imagine you've got muscle fibers that you can reach the end range of in terms of 
if you get your fingers together and you interlock them, you know, in terms of like your index fingers, are, they're pointing opposite to each other and they, they, they connect in. So you've got almost like teeth with your hands. And just imagine there your, your muscle fibers, the, the overlapping of your muscle fibers, the actin myosin, right? Now, if you get to the very end where it's just your fingertips touching, that's where Titan is at its longest, right? Now, if you didn't have that Titan there and you just kept going, your muscle cells, like your actin and myosin, would completely detach. Now, what's the likelihood of you pushing a string back into the hole that it was already in? Like, if you push a string in, it's not going to go. Like, if you can pull a string in, it's going to be so much easier to keep it on the same track. So that's why you have that Titan there. Now, again, the, all, all this stuff can seem really theoretical and you can kind of go, like, how, how does this actually apply to my everyday training? Right, so they, they, they've, they've listened to you babble on there. They've gone, okay, I've listened to that. I've rewound it. I listened to it three times. I kind of get it. Maybe, maybe, maybe they look up a diagram or two or maybe yeah. you know, a video on you. But they, they get it. They kind of go, okay, I understand that sliding filament theory a little bit better now, right? Hmm. So how, how does that actually apply to our thought process around exercises because we'll get to the kind of stretching stuff in a minute because i do also think that people kind of shit the bed when it comes to that length and range a lot more than they shit the bed when it comes to that kind of shortening like people can understand the contraction mm. a lot more than that, that that kind of passive range or that yeah we'll call it passive range um so so yeah how does this apply because I, I know i know you like exercise mm-hmm. More than even the, the, the theory of the muscles, like you actually like, yeah. like you, you got into this kind of stuff from the exercise perspective, the movement yeah. perspective. So, so how does this actually apply to our thought process when we are selecting exercises or when we are looking to optimize an exercise for either ourselves or someone we're coaching, someone we're training? So the, ba- the main thing to consider is, is the relationship between actin and myosin at these varying points of cross bridging and that's where looking up a diagram is a great shout so if you haven't done that go and do it if you know roughly what it looks like you'll have an idea of what i'm going to talk about now but it's basically like paddy explained with the velcro you want to view it like if you had two strips of velcro and you were kind of in a lengthened position there wasn't a lot of velcro touching each other you can basically assume that the amount of force production is going to be lower and then as you move into that kind of mid-range where there's a lot more Velcro in touch with Velcro, which is the myosin in touch with actin, um, the force production is going to be a lot higher, so you're going to be stronger. And then as you continue into that shortened range where if you see it more in a diagram, but the, the Z, the Z, Z discs, Z discs um, get pulled so close together that there's no extra... Not only is there no room for that to sh- like sarcomere to shorten anymore, but you have like Titan, which is so tinyly um, compressed at the end. There's no, basically, no capacity for force production. So, so you kind of have these two extremes where, in that lengthened position, you're actively very weak, and then in that mid range, you're actively very strong, and then as you go into that shortened range, you're actively even weaker and, and like the key word to be aware of there is actively so there's like the difference between active and passive and that's where understanding the that all that passive 
connective tissue that we went through at the beginning comes in because you basically have in that lengthened position where and and you'll see graphical representations of this with like uh which is what known as a strength profile where you have this this kind of bell-shaped curve where it will say like oh you know you're weakest in the short range and you're strong in the mid range and then you get weak again and that's that thing i just explained and paddy explained like the cross bridging and then when you go into like you factor in passive tissue into that that that's more of this kind of ascending um tension that is is in in a way exponential because passive tissue is never going to tire um because it's passive um and it doesn't have the same like neuromuscular innovations and so its ability to Produced tension is not mediated by any energy source. So, I mean, that's basically one of the reasons why you're always going to be stronger on an eccentric contraction because you have this constant age from an untiring or, un- or non-fatiguing tissue. Um, but the um, but that will basically mean that in that length and range, although you're actively weaker, you're technically able to tolerate a lot more load, which is why people will notice that when they're at the bottom of a bench press and they're always fatiguing. With, with their ability, to, they're failing to, to shorten their, their pack anymore, but they can still kind of bounce around in that bottom position a bit because they've, they've, they're not only is the motor unit recruitment less on a on an eccentric phase, but they have this aid of, of passive tissue. Um, but it basically means that you, you have these considerations to when, when you're designing programs and when you're in the gym training that you're always going to fatigue quicker in, in that shortened range because not only are you actively weaker, you don't have any kind of supporting tissue, um, and you're, you're when you can get a muscle into its mid range and length range, you're going to be able to handle a lot more load. And when you, and you, I mean, it's a bit of a bold step, but to say that, it, you know, you, I mean, you can conclude or you can hypothesize that the more cross bridging you have and the more force production you have, the greater the potential is for hypertrophy stuff like that. So if your goal is I want to build muscle, spending time and, and getting stronger in those ranges and training muscles in those those stronger mid-length ranges is potentially a good thing to do. Um, but it, it all boils down to kind of not only understanding this like micro-anatomy that we're going through here, but then looking at anatomy on the grander scale of, okay, I know that more or less most muscles are going to function similar from this like cellular level when we're looking at myofilaments and like active myosin, but then it's a case of, okay, now what am I looking at when I've got someone who's built completely differently, someone who has a much big, like, bigger amount of muscle mass compared to someone else, and you know all these different structures that are going to influence how those muscles are being recruited within that training session um, and within you know for that individual. Um, so there's a lot to consider, but it, it generally starts with understanding anatomy on all these varying levels. I mean, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Uh, like I, I like to always think whenever we talk about passive and active ranges and whenever we talk about like the strength profile of a muscle, I know people can kind of get lost with that in terms of they, they may have felt it, but they may not know that they have actually felt it in terms of they haven't put all of that stuff together in a ni- nice, neat little box in their head, you know, so they don't know what, like how it all fits together. And the way I always kind of like to explain it because it's one of the the easier ones to see. Like you use the bench press as an example, but people kind of choose to ignore it on the bench press and kind of go, oh no, I'm never weak off the chest, even though they're actually just using passive structures 
to get off that one to two inches off the chest. And then they're like, oh, I have a sticking point there. And it's like, like, is that a sticking point or is that your muscles actually just starting to work now? You know, like it was passive beforehand, you know? So people kind of, they don't fully contextualize it there and they don't really see it there. However, if we use the hamstrings, then people really start to see it, right? So you can imagine you're in, say, a even standing, right? If you contract your hamstring, you can get, say, three quarters of the way up. There's about, whatever, five centimeters between your bum and your heel actively, right? So you can contract your 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 hamstring enough to bring your heel that close or however close it is for you, right? But that, say that's your active range now, right, for your hamstring. Now, I could grab my ankle and pull my heel to my bum, right? But that's passive. Like, I can't actively bring it that last little few centimeters, right? So there you go. You can kind of contextualize that in your head in terms of, okay, so my active range is the stuff that I have active control over. The passive range is the stuff that is, well, passive, right? So you can kind of get that in your head. But then keeping with the hamstring, you can kind of then also see how the different strength profile of that muscle actually functions in terms of how you fatigue and how that affects your ability to contract that muscle so you imagine you're in say a, ham- a line hamstring curl and like let's just imagine that you have really good glute control and you are actually keeping your glutes pinned down because most people again shit the bed when, <laughs> when they're doing line hamstring curls so we'll just presume that you're you're doing them correctly and the glutes are engaged throughout they're not fatiguing they're not the issue your your hips are glued down to the pad right so and you have everything set up correctly right now you do a hamstring curl, you're in that legs extended position, like that, that bottom position. Like it's going to be rare that you will feel like you'll feel a stretch, a little bit of a stretch on the hamstrings there. Now it shouldn't be too much of a stretch, but you'll feel a little bit of some tension on the hamstrings. So you're actually weak in that position, but most machines are going to be somewhat set up. So that's not a really challenging part. Then you can track that mid range is where it's challenging and where most people will first fatigue is getting into that shortened range, right? So they'll get up there and their first one, the the little pad thing will hit their their, their hips. They're, they've got, oh, yes, I have that active control and they're able to all the way touch their, 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 their upper hamstring or their glutes with the pad, whatever it is. Or maybe they're just a little bit off that. Wherever it is for them, they have their, their own unique active range, right? So they've got that. And then as the reps continue, if you record it, you'll see that slowly start tipping back they're going less and less of a range so that shortened range yeah. they're not really getting getting in tight into that shortened range right yeah. and then the, the mid-range they're all good and then the next time what they do is they fatigue in that kind of lengthened range so that's how i kind of visualize it or help people visualize it now obviously there's a lot of subtle nuance that goes into that like you may have done all really shortened range stuff in terms of all your hamstring train, training has always been really shortened range stuff so you're actually a monster in that shortened range and you never fatigue there <laughs> but just t- taking the the general population that that generally helps people kind of contextualize all that stuff a little bit better when they can see that in an exercise however that should kind of get the the cogs in your head turning in terms of your overall exercise selection so if you know there's an exercise that you're doing that is potentially or a certain range or a certain point in that range is your limiting factor you should be using that to inform your overall exercise selection if you want we'll call it overall development whatever that actually means for you you know um 
you should be looking at different exercises or pairing different exercises or having different exercises in an overall workout structure, either in the workout or in the workout week or mesocycle or whatever you want to call it. You should be looking at how am I actually acting on that muscle and that muscle's strength profile? Like, am I, am I just getting strong in the mid range? Because generally that's what people do. They choose all the exercises where it's like, or like I'm actually really, really strong in this exercise. They're all just mid-range exercises and they choose those because they're mid-range exercises and they're really, really strong. So it feeds their ego and they're like, yeah, man, I love this. Like, it's great, you know? Um, so what what are your thoughts? When you're looking at someone and you're looking at this, this strength profile stuff and you're looking at this, this passive range, this active range stuff, how are you using that to inform your your exercise selection and your choices of exercises because in my opinion people are piss weak in both the shortened range and the lengthened range now it's the shortened range that people really i'm gonna say struggle to get to struggle to get you but people also kind of butcher the shortened range once they kind of learn this stuff Mm -hmm. they kind of go okay cool i understand i should get into the shortened range and then they start using like active insufficiency as their their sole means of how effective an exercise was you know like that they'll ignore that getting strong in the mid-range does actually lead to hypertrophy and they'll just kind of go oh i got really shortened and my muscles started cramping like they'll do like bicep curls behind the head or something and they'll be like oh like these are really good for my bicep because they feel it more you know so how, how do you look at that in the overall structure of your your workouts and go okay, we want to target different strength profiles, different resistance curves as a result. And we want to put that in an overall structure where we're actually getting strong, but we're also building muscle. Mm. I mean, it starts for me with nailing down execution with to a point. To, so to allow, for instance, I mean, you gave the example of the hamstrings and it goes across most body parts that, Yes, the short range is the hardest position to kind of train because of the amount of control you need to get there and the kind of muscular ability you, you need, like the, the ability you need to have to contract a muscle and get it that short. And for that reason, it's like this range that most people, nine times out of ten, don't actually go to because their body is way smaller than them and, and, and it will always find a way and this is what happens nine times out of ten, where the body finds a way to reintroduce length into a particular muscle without someone realizing. But they're like, "Yeah, man, I fucking PB this week." It's like, "No, you didn't. You let your hips come up on that, like the last five reps of that hamstring curl." And that, you know, that's what will happen. Like someone starts, you know, they they do a you know set of ten on on a nine leg curl, and, and they're the first five reps, they're like, you know, your hips are pretty locked down. And then the last five, their hips start shooting up off the pad. And it's like the body's just like, dude, I'm fatigued there. I've lo- like lost the ability to kind of get into that position actively. And now I'm going to find a way to continue asking, you know, doing what you're asking me to do, which is bring my legs as far up as I can, my, my, my feet as far up as I can. And that involves essentially lengthening that hamstring from the end closer to the hip, which requires hip flexion. So you get people kind of arching their ass up off the seat. And you see it in things like rows where people will start off a set with a really great degree of scapular stability and like depression at the glenohumeral joint. And then they end it where they start to elevate loads. And it's kind of a, this is where it boils down to 
if you're going to train, if you're going to pick an exercise where you're placing the most amount of uh, focus, or you're asking your muscle to produce the most amount of torque in its shortened range, a you've got to understand that you're probably not going to have a huge potential for hypertrophy there because of the the low amount of cross breeding that's going to be occurring in that position, but the difficulty and the, the like the lack of load that you're going to need to get there but you've also got to be of a good enough level with regards to training and like nailing down execution that you can effectively train that position and not let your execution get compromised and, and your body kind of find a way to to sabotage that and um and it's uh, and that's where you know you you, you need to be able to if, you know back to the hamstring example you'd be on a line leg curl and as you start fatiguing, you would be aware that your hips are going to come up, so you would just adjust the range of actual knee flexion that's occurring. So you, and, and, and that's either a case that if you want to use a decent amount of load, you're only going to get a few full reps, if you even want to use that term, in where you're getting fully short, and then the rest of the set you are going to be in more of a mid-range anyway. Um, but in terms of understanding the implications of the active and passive, it's, it's kind of boils down to being aware of your own available ranges and 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 that's where like a good assessment strategy comes in so you know before you know if you're a coach out there if you or if you're just someone who just trains on your own um be you know you you should f- find a way to to basically measure the available ranges you have and at each joint and and then adapt accordingly so you know if you're and 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 then be able to recognize if you've got kind of any glaring discrepancies between right right and left so you know if someone has like let's say hypothetically again on the hamstring curl they can flex their their knee uh, to the point where their heel is five centimeters away from the bum and then on the on that's on the right leg and on the left leg they can only get their they can only flex their knee to the point where they it's like 10 centimeters away. So, okay, someone probably is going to need to find a way to train these guys individually um, because there's a huge difference in in the active ranges and that's going to influence the positions they're going to be able to get into. Um, and, uh, and then it's a case of finding a way to kind of get length back in the hamstring or in the you know quad, if you want to look at it from that side. Um, which you know, kind of again goes back into the, uh, the the structure of muscles and stuff like that, and, and the processes that are going on when a muscle is shortening and lengthening, um, and you know, how do we improve that? Which which we'll get to later, but but it, you know, it's a big, it's it's a it 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 can, it can be daunting for a lot of people this side of things because it it makes training not as simple as people think. But then, when you do understand it, it is pretty simple. You just got to know how to how to you know personalize the exercise experience and uh, and optimize it if you can. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that actually I think is really interesting when you start delving deep into this kind of stuff because initially exercise is easy, right? Because it's like do lunges; they work 
depending on if you lean a little bit forward, they work your glutes, you stay a bit more upright, you, they work your quads, and you're like, yeah, I'm happy in that knowledge. Or, you know, do your squats, they work your quads, do some bench press, it works your chest. And exercise is easy because, especially when you're talking about like hypertrophy, it's, it's really easy because do this exercise, get this outcome. Really stupid, simple, no extra thought process needed, right? But then you start delving deep into all this kind of stuff, and then it gets really, really fucking hard because you're like, oh, fuck, man. Well, I want to do this perfect workout where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fully targeting and fully perfectly target, targeting different portions of the uh, strength profile of a muscle. You know, I'm, I'm really per- choosing the perfect exercise to get that shortened range. And I'm choosing the perfect exercise to get that lengthened range. And I'm choosing the perfect exercise to really overload that, that mid range, you know. And you, you can kind of get this paralysis by analysis when you know you're, you're in that kind of middle range of knowledge in terms of you know there's this extra stuff to it but then once you really get into it it actually becomes easy again because you understand it so well you know what the individual needs rather than what the quote-unquote general needs like you're, you're you're looking at it when you get into just understanding this stuff you're looking at this in terms of how does this apply to everyone you just presume that a muscle is the same for everyone. So you need to learn to target that muscle 100% effectively in this generalized sense. But then when you really understand it, you understand that it's actually just all about the individual. And like, maybe you are just a beast in the fucking short range and you like, you just never need to, you never need to train that. So like, it's just whatever way you're built, whatever way you're set up, whatever your goals are, it's just, it's, it's a no factor and you're actually better off training in the Lenten range or you're better off training in the, the mid range. So you, you stop over analyzing it. And I know people starting starting out in the industry. Like I actually wish I kind of started out in the industry now because there's actually so much good information out there now. Like a lot of people are putting out more in-depth stuff than was out there when I was in, like starting out. Uh, obviously with more knowledge, become it becomes a lot harder to actually distinguish what is good knowledge and what is bad knowledge, but that's another story altogether. But the fact that like we... We actually we were actually able to discuss all this stuff and people are actually able to follow along and understand it just shows you how far the industry has moved along but it gets to the stage where you kind of go oh fuck man there's so much that i have to think of to design these perfect workouts that exercise stops being fun and exercise starts being like a, a science class when it, it should it doesn't need to be like that it just needs to be a little bit more thought out you know you just need to realize that okay, for you as an individual, you know, working on these exercises are going to be more beneficial than working on these exercises because of your setup. And then if you are looking to achieve a certain goal, understanding that, you know, maybe momentum is something you want to bring in, even though on some exercises, like it'd be stupid to bring it in. Like you were doing, like you put up a post to you today about like the the kind of bent over row, or I think it was a a kind of chest supported row you were talking about and use, using a bit of momentum perhaps that's actually beneficial due to the way that muscle is functioning you know like you're if you if you just go on and be like oh well i have to actually find this this perfect strength profile and i have to fit this perfect strength profile like it's it's an impossibility for some muscles and you shit the bed if you just go too down the rabbit hole and be like no, everything has to be 1000% stable. Everything has to be 1000%, you know, fixed to this uh, resistance pro or this uh, strength profile. I have to fit this resistance profile perfectly to it. And you, you stop building muscle as a result. 
Like you, you overcomplicate things so much that you actually stop doing the things that are beneficial, you know? Yeah. I mean, we could go off on a huge tangent there on like the, 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 the neurological response we have to training, <laughs> but the, um, the, no, I mean, it, it's so true it? and it kind of, people need to realize that when they start going down this road of things, like if they start going into RTS and they start getting involved into the mechanic side of things more, it's incredibly overwhelming at first and you kind of leave going, what the fuck? There's, you know, what have I been doing? I'm going to quit my job. And it's like, <laughs> you know, the, the it gets overwhelming. And But, you know, the big thing to realize is, yeah, like Paddy's saying, you're never going to get the perfect rep. You're never going to get the perfect set. It, it's a case of being as smart as you can with the knowledge you have and challenging a muscle as, you know, optimally as you as, as you can or as you believe you can and working pretty damn hard in the process and people kind of lose they go you know there's that whole debate of they go to one end or the other and they start being super obsessive about optimizing everything and then they lose the ability to train really hard which is ultimately the thing that's going to do it anyway because how many guys do you see you know pro bodybuilders that are unbelievably jacked and they train that absolute balance and it's like yeah so there's definitely more to this picture and 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 it's it's a case that I, I had a conversation with one of my mentors the other day, and he, he was saying, like, you know, if you had you asked him two years ago, what's the what's the golden rule? What's the key to hypertrophy? He'd have gone execution, hundred percent. Every time you have to execute well, you have to design, you know, exercise unbelievably well. And then you see all these these guys that train like absolute, you know, idiots, like throwing weight around. There's no kind of thought about what they're doing they're pairing back exercises together that essentially all load the muscles in the exact same way and they're morphing into these absolute machines and it's like okay yeah you know there's the argument of are they doing what's right and just training their ass off or would they be 10 20 percent better where they have to take this stuff into account we'll never know but it's 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 this side of things is definitely got a huge part to play and it is um it's definitely worth your time, especially as an exercise professional. And it, and it goes beyond the realms of hypertrophy. Like you, you don't need to, you know, obviously Paddy's goal is to be as jacked as possible and get the biggest calves ever. And, <laughs> and that's the goal of, uh, goal of myself and Callum. Um, but the, um, there's more to training than just building muscle. And, you know, if it's a case of you want, you, you've got clients and I've got, you know, I've got clients and there'll be loads of people out there with clients that, have people that just want to be pain-free. And that's probably nine times out of ten going to involve you having a greater understanding of how to load that person's particular tissues in the most effective way possible and understand their unique anatomy and what things may be kind of dysfunctional or inhibited and then how, how to get that stuff back online. And that kind of all comes into this realm of understanding anatomy, understanding the neurological side of training, understanding things like post-activation potentiation and, and, and you know, when it's appropriate to you stretching and when it's not appropriate. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big ballpark, but it's, um, it's, it's important. Yeah. Right. So let's move on to the lengthened range because we've actually talked a lot about the shortened range. We've talked a lot about the mid range. We've talked a lot about kind of exercise selection and some thought processes around that. Now, obviously we could go off on a thousand different discussions in terms of 
how to select exercises, how to do whatever. And that's kind of what we do talk about in the militia. And that's what you guys talk about on your social medias and stuff and you know the, the kind of content you put out as well so let's not get into that let's get into the lenten range so this is kind of stretching stuff as people like to call it because i actually think people are actually just retarded with stretching oh, protocols yeah. and the stuff that they do uh, and like i hate the fact that there is this i don't know just complete misunderstanding of Black stretching Black. as a whole because yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's complete disregard yeah. for even trying to understand. It. <laughs> um, like the, the way I kind of look at all of this, the stretching stuff, it's it's just length and range strength to me. That in my mind, it's all just length and range strength. So it's it's one of your your two end range strengths. So you can get very very strong in a shortened range, and you can get very very strong in a lengthened range. So the processes you employ to achieve both should be pretty fucking similar in my mind, right? However, what I see a lot of people doing is completely opposite to what they would do to get strong in the shortened range, right? And now obviously that does have its place. Like stretching is a thing and passive range is a thing. So it's that kind of, in my mind, people do kind of, or they don't distinguish between flexibility and mobility because in my mind i think mobility first when i think of like stretching and stuff like i'm thinking mobility i'm thinking like actually having more control in those end ranges right in my mind that's what it's like 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 i can do like passively i can do an over splits right on on both sides but i have no active control there like my hips like i can you could passively like bend me into a pretzel but i've no control there right so what i want to do when i'm looking at any of this stretching stuff is build more strength in the end of the ranges that i have so in my mind it's the exact same stuff or the exact same protocols that are used to get strong in the shortened range however it it all stems from this complete lack of understanding of this lengthened range so we've talked about that that kind of sliding filament theory and we've talked about like the kind of role of tighten as well in that end range position so what are your thoughts on this whole oh, kind of length and range <laughs> um i i agree with what you just said um the um i think yeah there, there needs to like the, the length and range is this is probably for me the the range that we've got to be more aware of with regards to how far we can go um because it's essentially this is the range that you're more likely to get injured in. And that's where things like stretching will come in, because you will essentially build up your tolerance to, to you know, having a muscle uh, at a particular length and, you know, tolerance to load in, in a certain position. You know, it's, it's, there's, not, there's, there's not no reason to stretch like that. And, and that's where stretching can be useful and... Um, but it is is hugely misunderstood or not not really given a chance to be understood and and people kind of have this you know incredibly emotional re- relationship with stretching in the sense of there's certain people where if you if you start bashing stretching it will just offend them to their very core because they you know stretching's helped them get over something you know they 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 had this chronic knee injury and then they spent 6 months stretching and it went away 
and and they're like, oh, it was a stretching, 100% stretching did it. It's like, yeah, maybe it was a stretching, or maybe it was the fact that during those six months you stopped doing what was causing the knee issue in the first place. And and that's where, you know, so many people do that sort of thing that you know they take away the the, the thing that's causing the issue and they put something else in. Like, oh yeah, it was that. It was the thing I put in. That was it. It's like, yeah, I don't know because when you look at like we're gonna, in a minute. And like we did, like the mechanisms behind how muscles lengthen and, and you know stretch, uh, quote quote, um, the um, stretching passively doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's um, you know, and, and it, it, it grinds my gears a little bit when people say that you know they have an injury, they won't see this you know physio, and they said, oh, I was told to do this stretch. It's like, well, what makes you think that? You know, you know, hypothetically, they tore a muscle or strain a muscle doing something that was lengthening a muscle. Why is arbitrarily like tugging that muscle into an even more lengthened position going to help with rehabilitating it? So it, it doesn't really follow. And um, but anyway, it boils down to the question of do muscles really stretch? And if they do, how does it affect force production? And it's like we've already seen certain components of muscle tissue stretch and and that like in in a manner like akin to that to an elastic band in like you know so that would be like the aforementioned connective tissues the titan filaments though i mean the titans more more so contributing to like the force production um and the force being produced by active tissue but it's still lengthening in that manner but it's the connective tissues that make up that like sharp passive non-fatiguing increase in tension that's produced by muscle tissue at the end range of a muscle's length which is what you'd see in like those graphs and stuff and things and um and but it's but it's also yeah and like i said before that's why we're more capable of handling heavier loads in that position um but it's it's a case of if we're looking at the active tissue and and like paddy mentioned with you know the difference between passive and active range generally speaking you're probably going to be more at risk of injury if there's a huge discrepancy between your active range and your passive range and like ideally if you can get those as close as you can and you have a lot of control in you know in those passive ranges or more control than you previously had your risk of kind of injuring a muscle and exceeding its tolerance which is mostly how you're going to injure yourself is going to be a lot lower um but um so the question is like does does active tissue stretch and not really you know like we we've seen like the active change you know changes that occur within the sarcomeres happen via that cross bridging interaction between the myofilaments and it's so it's not like if we if i pulled someone's hip into abduction the guys in the the sarcomeres and their ad, in their adductors are still cross bridging for most of that and then you get to that point where oh yeah, it feels really tight there and that's because the muscle can't go any actively further and you've probably reached the part of that movement where you're passively as lengthened as you can get that muscle and that's the feedback you're getting. It's like, yeah, that's that feels good because I've pulled the muscle, you know, I'm stretching it and, and, and then you let it go and you're like, oh, that feels much better and it's like, yeah, it probably does feel better because you're no longer wrenching a muscle into a range that's pretty uncomfortable. Um, but the the ultimate question that needs to be asked, and this is where if you look at loads of graphs about this stuff and people that have gone into 
measuring force production in a muscle. If, if we're not at about 200% of a muscle's resting length, which is near enough in most people, that's going to be like when you pull a muscle to its, to its like end range of passive, uh, passive, right, it's end passive range, basically. The, um, and this is more applicable in like muscles that aren't crossing a kind of like a hinge joint. Like, so like biceps, hamstrings, quads, triceps, you know, lengthening those guys and shortening those guys is pretty straightforward. The active and the passive range don't tend to differ that much. In the case of the things around the shoulder, around the hip, you're going to see a lot more variance in how far you can, for instance, actively abduct your hip versus how much you can passively abduct it. And um, and that and that's meant generally to do with how those joints are maintained by muscles and, and ligaments and stuff like that. Um, but the um, so so it goes back. If we're not at like two hundred percent of a muscle's resting length, and that's the range where passive tissue is most providing pretty much all the tension and, and active tissue is is doing pretty much fuck all. Um, the uh, we're probably dealing with. Uh, yeah, so yeah, if we're not two hundred percent resting leg and we're feeling tightness, we're probably dealing with a lack of available length within the contractile components of muscle tissue. So where you you know hypothetically you're kind of sitting in a range, of, you know, you're standing at the top of a squat and you're already feeling tightness in your glute. It's like okay, that's that tightness is, is originating in a component of muscle tissue that we know for sure is not passive because we're not passively pulling that muscle anywhere. That tightness is being is originating in in the the, the active realms of muscle tissue. So like the, the, the myofilaments that we discussed earlier in the sarcomeres and all that stuff. And and if we're doing that, if we're feeling that, then this active tissue we know is controlled and regulated by nervous system activity. So the solution is not going to be found by arbitrarily pulling a muscle to its end range. You know, sure, it may increase tolerance in that position, but it's more likely that we need to look into ways to lay down and improve the function of the contractile units of the muscle, the active tissue, which is not going to involve stretching. That's going to involve training a muscle and essentially improving the neural output to a muscle. So you're looking at things like post-activation potentiation, which is essentially the, um, I mean, the, actually the quote from a, a guy, D.W. Robbins, he says, um, post-action potentiation is the phenomenon by which acute muscle output is enhanced as a direct result of a muscle's contractile history i may be paraphrasing there but that's basically i'm pretty sure that is exactly it but he basically says that you know that that this is the thing where you know someone goes into a gym and they do a set of leg extensions and they're like shit that feels heavy like that feels fucking heavy and then they take 30 seconds to a minute have a little bit of rest and then they do the same weight again they're like oh it feels a lot easier it's like, oh, sweet. But suddenly that's a lot easier. And we see it a lot, you know, people use this as a thing in like strength training. And it's like, what's happened there is your, your muscles essentially gone. Okay. I get what you're asking me to do. I'm going to, I'm going to contribute more with regards to the motor units in that muscle. 
and and like the the activity will increase there. And you know, so if you've got someone with this like inhibition in a muscle when you're not in a passive range, the um, you're most you're going to see a lot of benefit from looking at ways to increase neural you know neural activity within that muscle and therefore length and like post activation potentiation could be one. And then it, and then you would look at even on a more basic level. Oh, okay, we know that muscle length in the active range is mediated by these contractile you know myofilaments how can i get more of them involved then it would be a case of looking into the realms of actually stimulating things like myofibrillar hypertrophy and then you know laying down literally more sarcomeres and therefore actinomyosins titans etc in in series and that will function as a way of directly increasing length within active muscle tissue so it's it's there's a ton of different ways of looking at it and but people are so quick to go oh you know so he's, he's feeling tight in his, in his glute he's got to stretch it he's got to stretch it and it's like Ugh, why why do you have to stretch it it's like, oh because I I was told to stretch it by so and so years ago and uh, and it worked it's like okay did it work or did it was it just that you stopped doing the thing that was causing the issue and that kind of boils down to that that discussion then so it's, it's like Stretching is does have a place. Do we want to spend more time exploring some of the other options that are at our disposal, which requires us to dig a little deeper, probably. But I mean, that's that's um, that's asking a lot of the fitness industry. But <laughs> we, a man can dream. Yeah, like the, the 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 one I always see as well is like field sports players. They they consistently complain of like, oh, I have tight hip flexors, tight hip flexors, tight hip flexors, man. My hip flexors, they're so tight. And they're literally doing glute work to kingdom come. They're literally doing all their glute bridges, all their whatever. And it's like, you like the, the problem isn't that, and like they're stretching their, their hip flexors mad. They're doing couch stretches. They're doing everything possible to stretch those hip flexors and strengthen their glutes as a, to, to, in effect, stretch their hip flexors. And you're like, yeah, like, cool, this is this is not exactly bad training. Like, maybe some of you do have, quote-unquote, tight hip flexors um, that would benefit from some stretching. Like, maybe, I don't know, maybe you do sit at a desk all day and you just actually have chronically shortened hip flexors. Maybe, maybe that is you. Maybe it is. But for the majority of them, the simple fact is their hip flexors are just weak. Like, they, they just have really, really fucking weak hip, hip mm. flexors. And what actually ends up, solving the problem is strengthening their hip flexors not not stretching them strengthening them and it kind of runs counter to what you think because i understand the thought process you have a muscle it feels kind of tight so your initial thing would be oh i'm going to stretch that muscle and then if you're a little bit more forward thinking you go i'm going to stretch that muscle and i'm going to strengthen its antagonist because that's going to help me stretch that muscle so Mm. i can understand the thought process but it's actually the wrong thought process. Or rather, it's not the wrong thought process. It's the wrong thought process for the issue. Because I actually think some, mm. some application of stretching, even muscles that you're like, well, like, why would I do this? Uh, I think so, some, some of them have a good application in, ter- in terms of, say, for example, we, we used the hamstring curl earlier on. Like potentially stretching your quads in between sets of hamstring curls Potentially, I can see a good benefit for that in terms of momentarily increasing your ability to 
actively contract mm. the hamstring purely because you've momentarily increased the passive range in your quads you know so i can see some of the applications for some of these stretching protocols but in my mind if i have to continually stretch a muscle or i have to continually stretch a movement or whatever you want to say and i only see benefit in the short term in terms of like i have to stretch that muscle every time i work out like I, all my hamstrings are always tight. I have to stretch my hamstrings before I work out or I just can't get a good workout in, whatever it is, you know? I see that as a problem. Like there's, like why do you continually have to do something to get the effect for half an hour? Like I would rather have the pro- problem, quote unquote, problem sorted so that yeah. I don't have to do these elaborate 40-minute warm-ups just to squat, you know like in my mind like th- that that's what i would be thinking i'm like well, what is the actual issue what's going to lead me to actually not having to do this 20 minutes 40 minutes of stretching before i work out or after i work out because i'm chronically tight you yeah know? i mean it, it, like you know, harking back to what you said just a minute ago like with the with the weakness and stuff like that there's this cool analogy i'm pretty sure it originated in rts um but you, you, you where um, i know michael goulden who's uh, someone I used to work with before. Um, he, he he uses this quite cool analogy, or the, he, he uses a diagram which can form an easy analogy of like looking at a joint and, and as, as kind of a tent, and like tent hooks, with the muscles acting as these tent hooks. And, and you have like, say, the hip, which has these, you know, however many, nine, whatever muscles attaching around it. And it's, um, I'm pretty sure there's more than nine. You know, whatever let's say there's 10 muscles attaching around it and um you know you you do something in the gym where you you're squatting and you're using a shitload of weight and then you you know all of a sudden bang you you exceed the tolerance of a couple of those guys and that joint still needs let's say each one of those muscles pulls with 10 pounds of force that that, that joint needs 100 pounds of force to maintain its integrity and you just knock two of those tent hooks off if that tent wants to stay standing you've got to tighten up some of those other hooks, you know, and, um, and that's to create that hundred pounds of force to maintain that joint. And that's, you know, is that how it works? Maybe it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and it, you know, it's, um, it's quite often the case where you have someone with this kind of inhibition in a certain muscle where they've kind of been a bit reckless in the gym and they've exceeded tolerance and, suddenly these other guys are having to tighten up to take the load because that guy isn't putting his weight and it, it, you know and then the, the theory is not you know or the solution is not okay let's stretch it let's find out what needs to be strengthened let's strengthen it up and um and i've personally helped a lot of people with that approach and it is not you know it works and it, and it not only does it work but it actually those people have never re- relapsed and that's one of the things that you often see with stretching where they go oh yeah i've, I've stretch for so you know x amount of time and now i'm no longer injured and then they go back to doing what they were doing and it happens again and you know in my opinion someone's not truly rehabbed if they go back to what they're doing it happens again they're truly rehabbed if they can go back to what they were doing and it doesn't happen again because you got to the root of the problem and, and um so it's yeah i mean the, the strength things are a big uh strengthening like looking at which muscles are weak is huge and then it's like you also need to consider the fact that when people do things like stretching and foam rolling they are causing like quite an acute reduction in that muscle's ability to produce force so 
they go in to do a big squat session and they go and spend t- 10, 20 minutes foam rolling at the beginning. And so, mate, you, you could potentially just reduce the amount of force that those guys are going to be able to produce in a, in a movement where you're going to need quite a lot of force. And, um, and like, you look at how that can happen and we have that thing we mentioned earlier where, where you passively lengthen the muscle quite a lot. The there's that like myofilament displacement that occurs where the, the cross bridging and the force reduction isn't going to be quite as good anymore. Um, or for, for a time after that. And it, you know, it does, it is a temporary reduction in force. So it's, it's, that's probably quite a common one. And then you can think of that, um, post activation potentiation thing that I mentioned, which is a huge, you know, this occurs throughout an entire, session that isn't something that you can just aim for it occurs whenever you train and that's like your body's ability to adapt to to produce more force you know more force output within a muscle as you train and, and you see it a lot especially if you go and look into like electromyography and stuff like that and it's um and then you look at stretching and they found that stretching has the ability to blunt post-activation potentiation so you know if we're lacking in the ability to upregulate muscle force production to the same degree in response to exercise because we're stretching, it's probably not a helpful thing to be doing right before we train. And, um, you know, and there's like a theory I have behind that. We're going off on one of it here. <laughs> but the, um, the theory of like, you know, stretching has been shown to be a parasympathetic dominant activity. And like, it is, um, you know, parasympathetic, you know, activity will lead to some element of calming within the like neuronal activity throughout the nervous system as opposed to like the excitatory effect that you'd have associated with like sympathetic dominance so that would be you know in response to training you get that kind of excitatory response if we you know now during exercise we know that we see an increase in in atp production within like if we look at the this goes into like the realms of neuroscience a bit but like the the axonal side of the neuromuscular junction that there is an increase in ATP production there and my one of my mentors Jacques Taylor he, he has this theory that PAP or post-activation potentiation like in order to like so during PAP if we in order to elicit more muscular force one of the things we need will likely be an increase in ATP production by the mitochondria within the axon to help drive the action potentials to stimulate the muscles. And that's just, you know, regardless of PAP, we're going to need that anyway. And um, and then I've kind of been thinking that given the parasympathetic nature of stretching and the negative impact that stretching can have on post-activation potentiation, it's most likely due to the reduction of, you know, the rate of ATP production within the, the axonal mitochondria that is causing this reduction in strength. So it could be this combination of things. And, um, you know, that our, our muscles are essentially losing the mechanism of driving post-activation potentiation and are then more reliant on these other mechanisms. And, you know, you couple that with that myofilament displacement theory and we've got this, this reason as to why stretching prior to a workout or prior to, you know, training with, an you know, an aim of having a lot of force production is a pretty stupid thing to do. And then you can go even further and say, if your aim is to potentiate a muscle and improve like, active contractile ability of a muscle, again, is stretching going to help on that front or is it just going to slow the process of, of improving? And it's, it's, 
you know, it's, it's a, I mean, that was a bit of a, bit of a, a rabbit hole, but it, it, it kind of, it, yeah. Yeah, but but it, it it makes sense. It makes sense though as well. Like I I always think as well with like the stretching pre workout, like it kind of like and you mentioned like EMG there as well. Like I I actually like I actually really dislike EMG because it doesn't take things into account like stretching, right? Because muscle fibers are well, muscle cells are thixotropic in nature in terms of they depend on. Or if you strap on EMG and whatever, it, it, the, the readings you get depend on what the muscle has done before that. So if you stretch a muscle before you do the readings, you will get a different reading than if you don't stretch the muscle before you get the readings, right? So the, the muscle fiber or the muscle cells themselves being thixotropic in nature, it, it throws off all these downstream things, you know? So obviously stretching before your workout is going to reduce your ability to contract during that workout, well, well, not contract, you reduce your ability to produce force during that workout purely if you look at the cells, like the physics of those cells, you know? So mm. like all, all that you were saying there, it, it makes sense in terms of the the reasoning behind this mm. without even actually going into the actual organism itself. Because I, I always look at it like the organism is responding to the environment, like your body or any organism isn't going to just create something that doesn't help it or potentially help it in an environment. So it all comes back to the physics that are acting on the cell and then the the physics of that cell itself, because everything within within that is going to be determined by that, by extension that it's like, realistically, everything is just maths and everything is just physics and you may not have to understand that fully and really dive down that deep into that rabbit hole, mm. but understanding that, that all that stuff is actually what's triggering mm. all these downstream stuff. Like, like I like biochemistry, uh, but I still have, to, I still, I still realize that at the end of the day, it's, it's physics mm. that's dictating why all of these different interactions are occurring. So like in, in, in my thought process, I'm like stretching pre-workout. It, it really doesn't make a sense. Like muscles essentially act like a, a non-Newtonian fluid. So it, it makes no sense to stretch them before a workout. It also makes no sense why people are like, oh, sheer force is really, really bad for muscle or for connective tissue. I'm like, that makes no sense. Like it's a non-Newtonian fluid. Like it, it gets stronger the more sheer force you put on it. Like it actually... Like it, it's getting yeah. stronger yeah. from this thing you're telling to avoid, but that's that's a whole other rabbit hole yeah. itself. And yeah, next slide. So, in terms of stretching, to kind of bring this to a close, and then we'll discuss one or two extra things. Is there a a point in time that you bring in stretching with someone? Is there validity to stretching? And I'm not talking about mobility work because in my mind, mobility work and flexibility work, which is like stretching work. They're two different things. So mobility, you could be working on that during a session in terms of like you could be doing a bench press for improved mobility, you know, like you, so in my mind, mobility is just end range conditioning, either shortened range or lengthened range. You're actually just looking to get stronger in those ranges. So is there a point where you bring in, we'll call it well, passive 
stretching, passive flexibility work. Because like I, I do, and I mentioned one earlier on, I do think there are certain points in time where potentially, you know, this is actually a good thing where, for example, we do that like quad stretch while we're doing, or in between sets of hamstring curls. Like purely because if you're lengthening passively that quad, you're able to potentially get a little bit more active range out of that hamstring. So I do think there are potentially times where, you know, a little bit more of a passive stretch has a place. Generally, I look at it more of an antagonistic thing rather than an agonist type thing. But what are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, for me, I, I don't think to this day I've ever program stretching in someone's program but the the more i've dug into it with a bias of stretching bullshit the more i've come to think actually there could be a place for it and um so i i think that will change um but the um you know as of now i i've always been more concerned with what i can get out of someone actively so so where where you get in a lot of people it would be okay i want you to do these passive you know stretching exercise before you train with mine it would be okay i want you to do these potentiation kind of you know activation style things before you train with an aim of feeling stronger than when you you started and kind of getting a little bit more range actively um but i do think now that you know we, i've dug into this more that there's a range there's a an argument for using stretching from a you know, to, as a way of kind of improving your response, your ability to handle loads and tolerate loads in certain, um, you know, at certain contractile lengths. And, you know, as, as someone the other day that just injured my adductor, um, I, I now think, uh, like the more I've dug into it and like I've, I've in a week, it's, it's pretty much, the stuff I've been doing for it is pretty much back to normal, but I know that if I want to not have that happen again, I've got to find a way to improve the way to, to of my adductor to, to tolerate load in the length and position. And, you know, I might start implementing stretching in conjunction with the stuff I'm doing. And when I do implement stretching, it will be well away from the workout perimeter. So it's a case of using it when it's, when it's needed and when it's most appropriate. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, in terms of I've, I've programmed in things like extreme, you know, the DC style extreme stretches um, for people, but I would never refer to them as an extreme stretch. I refer to them mainly as, and, and this is how I think people should think of it. If they're ever going to load a muscle up in, a, in an active range is a, you want to know that the muscle you're doing it with is a, a smart muscle to do that with. And B, um, you want to you want to think that you're not exceeding your active range. You're kind of holding a muscle in its like length, it, uh, the its greatest range of uh, of active length, and you're kind of you're basically holding an isometric contraction there and not exceeding it too much. Because the minute you start exceeding active ranges with a lot of load, that's when you're probably going to injure yourself, in my opinion. But then, like you said. Um, you know, is there a place for stretching like your quads, for instance, when you're doing hamstrings? Maybe, you know, and it's what I, you know, what I just mentioned about there are muscles that it makes sense to stretch more and ones that it makes sense not to stretch more, in my opinion, again. Um, and like the quads, in my opinion, <laughs> would not be one I would want to stretch purely because the more kind of elastication we create in their um that patella tendon, which really which can happen as, as a response to stretching, 
the 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 lower the ability to transfer force from the quads to the tibia will be. So in terms of transferring all the force that we're producing from the quads during something like a squat or a leg extension, if we start really stretching those that patella tendon a lot, you're potentially going to downregulate that. And then also, you know, on a, on the flip side, there's things like the the calf where where we have the Achilles tendon, which we actually want to be pretty elasticated, um, given that, you know, the role it plays in gait and the role it plays in, you know, I mean, transferring force throughout that lower limb but and that ankle joint. But th- there's a, there's a, an element of elasticity that we want there. So stretching the calf is not a bad idea. And then you look at things like the shoulder and the hip, and it's like where we look at, those those joints being largely held in place by a lot of the muscles around those joints. Do we want to, you know, stretching for sure could have a place, but I wouldn't want to overstretch them because you potentially compromise joint integrity. So it's like, you, you know, there's certain things you want to stretch, certain things you don't want to stretch. And, and it's, again, that comes down to knowing anatomy and what you're trying to get out of certain muscles. Yeah. And that, that is the thing. Well, it's with training as well. Like, just because you think you're targeting a certain thing doesn't mean you are actually targeting a certain thing. Like you might go, oh yeah, I'm stretching my quads, but realistically you're just stretching your patella tendon and like your, 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 your actual quads themselves are fully lengthened and all of the stretch you're actually getting is at the patella tendon. And you can be like me and have Osgood Slatter syndrome and just not even need to consider this because my fucking patella tendon is fucking lit anyway. Uh, <laughs> um so is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this up? I think that would be enough for it, bro. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think I've covered everything that I, uh, that I wanted to cover, everything that came to mind. So if you're happy. I am always happy. It's just in my nature, you know? Right, so where, where can people find you? I know, like, please don't mention cauliflower raisin i don't want to hear anything about him um but where where can people i went i went where where can people find you um i'm pretty much solely active on instagram under under biophysics which is all one word no spaces no no underscores or anything um and uh, and i'm also me myself and callum racetrick that's not cauliflower raisin oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the loophole. Uh, uh, myself and Callum Raystrick are about to launch our own podcast, and are also, um, I suppose I can say it now. We're, we're going to launch a, a coaching service called The Muscle Mentors, which is the name of the podcast as well. So you can find us both on that page as well, which is just The Muscle Mentors. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's that's where you can find. It. That's pretty lit. If if you're not bored by my <laughs> and and by my my rambling. If, if people want to find you guys, like what, what's the content they're going to get? Like what's the what's the benefit? Like give us your your ten, How ten to get second more jacked than triage. <laughs> give us your your ten, your ten second elevator pitch. Like what distinguishes you guys from the rest of the crowd? Like like what what am I going to get that from you that I'm not getting anywhere else? Uh, our general tagline is just going to be muscle mentors better than triage. <laughs> we, your, your business will be your business will be ruined. <laughs> your business will be ruined in about a week. Like if you put that. No, it's good. No, 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 no. So we're basically going to specialize in. Uh, well, we're physique coaches, so, so the the specialization is going to be with building physiques and you know getting people 
in pretty damn good shape and, and building a lot of muscle and doing it in a very you know as, as highly optimal way as we can we can achieve and uh you know putting a lot you know a very deep thought process into it much like the guys at triage you know so that and that's why we're all very good friends so it's um we we share a lot of the same views and, and, and approaches and it's very very thoughtful and, and not at all um generic i'd like to say so it's um First of all, I just I just like to mention for everyone here, I'm not your friend, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so people can find you biophysiques on Instagram. They can find you muscle mentors on Instagram. You're gonna have a podcast soon. It's gonna be launched. You're gonna be with cauliflower. I actually, I'm gonna try get that Calvin guy uh, on this on this podcast. See what the crack is because Gary's gone away. I don't know. I can't even remember like. As soon as he left the country, I just forgot that he existed as a person. So he's gone away for however long he's gone away. So I'm going to need some more guests. Otherwise, people are going to have to listen to me shite on for an back? hour, which is, I couldn't tell you. I, I genuinely don't care. Oh. Um, <laughs> so we may have to get you back on to have another yeah. chat about another thing at yeah. another stage. And then um, get me and but- Gavin together. Nah, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> um, but yeah, so do you have any parting words before I close this up? Um, I think my parting words for all the coaches out there would be start delving into the anatomy side of things more, start understanding the mechanics and personalizing your whole approach to training with both self and clients. And if you're a client of someone, it's you know, make sure you're working with a coach who's prepared to do that and not putting you at risk, basically. So try and be as optimal as you can be. Yeah, like I, I just add to that. Um, if you work for the muscle mentors, like we're actually going to give a discount for people that leave them and come to us instead. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, that's actually good advice for everyone. And there's, it's one of those things, especially with all this anatomy, all this kind of muscle physiology muscle biochemistry muscle fucking understanding stuff you can lose the forest for the trees very easily and go down a rabbit hole so deep that you kind of go oh like i'm just not going to exercise anymore because it's too 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 over my head there's too much to understand there's too much to whatever and it actually isn't that hard like yes it is scientific or whatever you want to call it but once you start understanding it you see how easily it actually does apply to what you are doing. So it doesn't have to be hard just because it's difficult to understand initially. So I know some people listening to this will kind of go, oh, that just went way over my head. You know, he was saying terms I just didn't understand and like half of it I was like asleep for. But honestly, if, if, <laughs> if, you, if you can just take away from this that there is stuff going on under the hood and – even though it's a very, like we've said it before, and it's very catchy in terms of remembering it, like saying muscle shorten and muscles lengthen, like, yes, that is the case, but there's a whole lot of stuff going on to actually facilitate that. And as a coach or as someone who trains, it kind of will help you understand why you are doing certain exercises and why certain exercises you feel better doing or certain exercises just don't seem to work for you as an individual. So understanding this stuff that little bit deeper 
will help you in the long run because you'll be less prone to injury, less prone to wasting your time on bullshit exercises that are just not working for you or are just not optimal for you. So learning this, although yes, it is a time investment initially kind of going, I have to delve into this. I have to understand this. It actually saves you time in the long run because you're able to pick exercises that reduce your likelihood of getting injured and then actually help you to build muscle and strength faster and ultimately safer, which is, should be the goal for everyone. Anyway, I'm not even going to let you jump yeah, in. And it's worth the one, worth, I suppose. It's worth adding, <laughs> worth adding that while this is complicated and while you, 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 when people get dug, get dug into this sort of thing, they come away and they're like, oh my God, I need to do this and this and this with all my clients. It's like the, the, it boils down to the most effective exercise is the one that someone enjoys doing. So it's finding that, you know, the skill of knowing this stuff and applying it to something that is still going to get you to retain clients and get them to enjoy what they're doing, but still being smart about it, which is the hard part. Yes, this is very true. Psych- psychology is not physiology, but physiology doesn't work unless psychology works. Um, mm. So I'm going to wrap this up here and then I'm going to annoy you afterwards. <laughs> Right. So if you guys are following us, again, follow the Muscle Mentors, follow Luke. We'll see what the crack is getting Callum on this. And as per usual, guys, if you have any questions, you know where to find us. And if you haven't joined the militia, now is the time to join it. So peace out, guys.